this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to begin this morning uh, in addition to the passage that we just read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and read a psalm. Our family has been going through psalms in our family worship, and this particular psalm struck me as being relevant in our current situation. It's a psalm of uh, the sons of Korah, Psalm 44, 23, and it says this, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There is a noticeable sense of urgency in the heart and in the words of the psalmist. And I know that um, just as we are going through these uh, psalms in our family worship, I know the Wallace youth have been going through the psalms. And we see a lot of times in the psalms a, a complaint, a, uh, a sense of urgency and desperation. Uh, and sometimes those emotions, sometimes those feelings are quite raw, as is the case with this psalm. Uh, so much so that um, I heard one Wallace youth say that um, they felt like David whined a lot. And um, that gave me a good chuckle. And so it made me think, what's the difference between whining, which may be something that we do when we're not happy, or and uh, what's the difference between that and complaining? Whining sometimes makes me think of the word bellyache, you know, something that uh, children do when their parents tell them to do something and they don't want to do it. But complaining can be an entirely different thing. Um, what makes the difference here is the attitude. Oftentimes when people whine or bellyache, they are simply venting their frustrations. They don't really want the person that's hearing their complaint or their whining to do anything about it other than remove them from the situation. Whereas complaining, or a biblical complaint, if we could call it that, has a different attitude altogether. In this psalm and in many psalms of David, we see a posture not merely complaining for the sake of venting frustrations, but rather looking to God for help. Looking to God as the Savior, as our Savior. Looking to God with a heart, of humility and dependence. 
humility and dependence. And that makes all the difference between whining and complaining. Because when we look to God in humility and dependence, we are looking to him to walk us through whatever difficulties we are experiencing, fully expecting in faith that he will be there for us and that he will answer our prayers and our, even our complaints. And so how do we learn about this humility and dependence? How do we learn what this is about? And there's no better place to look than at the person of Jesus Christ and his ministry on this earth. And there's no better place to understand that, perhaps, than this particular passage in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where we see on display for us a wonderful explanation of Christ's character and his nature, his humility and dependence as a human and as, a, as God. Turn uh, to the outline, if you will, and look at uh, what we uh, have in terms of the outline for this passage today, and you'll see that um, what we want to understand, what we want to learn, what we want to study today is having the attitude of Christ in our relationships with others, in our relationship with God for the glory of God. So first, in our relationship with others, second, in our relationship with God, and finally, for the glory of God. So first, let's look at having the attitude of Christ in our relationships with one another. And we can see from Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through, uh, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, what we see here is these uh, words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ demonstrated for us uh, that humility and that dependence in a beautiful way. I want to pause for a second and just highlight a few things about what Paul is doing in this letter as he communicates to us what the life of Jesus Christ was like and who he was in this uh, beautiful passage. First of all, Paul is the one who planted this church in Philippi. If you want to read about it, it's in Acts chapter 16. Uh, it was on his second missionary journey. And he's writing this letter from a prison in Rome. Uh, and, 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 and this church planting project that Paul and Silas went on in Philippi was not one that was um, met with uh, immediate success. When they went into the city, they were proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Paul cast out the demon from a woman and that got them into a lot of trouble. They ended up in jail. Uh, they were praying and singing, and, the, and an earthquake came and rattled the doors open. They came, they, uh, they came out and noticed that the jailer was getting ready to kill himself. They preached the gospel to him. He, he, uh, he uh, confessed Christ as his Savior, and with his whole family, they were baptized, and then the first church was planted in that city. Um, this was uh, a city that... Paul had um, uh, relationships with these people. He had intimate relationships with the people in the church. And so as he writes to them from this prison cell in Rome, he's concerned that they understand who it is that they are following, who their allegiance is towards. 
this particular passage in the letter is uh, what we could say the center of gravity of this entire letter. There's no one theme that, that uh, dominates Paul's letter to, to, to the church in Philippi. He's, he's talking about different aspects, but it all comes together in these, pa- in these verses right here. The center of gravity. Verses 6 through 11 are what we might call a Christological hymn. A hymn that is beautifully and poetically written that tells the story of Christ, his nature, his character, and his work in a brilliantly succinct poetic structure. There is some debate among scholars as to whether this was actually a hymn or not, but the majority of scholars do agree that this was an ancient hymn that perhaps the church sang. It makes little difference what it actually was. What we know is that it is the word of God. And we see this being introduced by verse 5. In verse 5, Paul tells us that we should have this attitude. The Greek in verse 5 is somewhat tricky. It consists of about 10 Greek words, one noun, one verb, and the rest are just prepositions, conjunctions, and pronouns, which makes the translation of it particularly difficult. I'm not a huge fan of the ESV translation, so I looked and found that um, there are other translations we can read in the King James or the NIV, but I read one commentary, uh, and this particular Greek scholar gave this translation. Adopt towards one another in your mutual relations the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. Adopt toward one another in your mutual relations that same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. I like this because it ties in what the previous two verses are talking about. Paul's addressing the church and saying, this is how we need to be with one another. We need to then look at Christ and see what it is that we need to model ourselves after. Have this attitude, the same attitude that Christ had, and that is this attitude of humility. We read earlier in the worship service from the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, in question number 26 about the kingship of Christ. And the question immediately following that is related to our theme today. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 27. And the answer, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That is an excellent summary of what the humiliation of Christ is all about. Today is Palm Sunday, and as we think about the events of Palm Sunday, and we look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, they beautifully show who it is that is entering into the city of Jerusalem the week before his horrible death on a cross. We see Christ in humility 
as he enters into Jerusalem, knowing the horrors that face him on the cross, the humiliation of being nailed on a cross, perhaps the most humiliating way someone could die in that time. And also knowing that his father would turn his face away from him. And knowing at the same time that he had every bit of power at his disposal to avoid all of the horrors that faced him, to vindicate himself against his enemies and use his power to avoid that inevitable, what seemed, what was, what, what, that uh, plan that God had for him. He had that power at his disposable, at his disposal, and yet he didn't use it. He comes into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And this day we celebrate the exact thing that Philippians 2, chapter 5, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 is telling us. We celebrate the humble obedience of Christ that led him to the events of the cross a week later. So how do we show forth this humility in our relationships with one another as a church, as a body of Christ, among ourselves and in the world? A few years ago, I was accused by one of my fellow missionaries of abusing my power as a leader, written up in a five-page letter that was submitted to the leadership of our organization, Mission of the World. And in that process, the leadership of the organization, the leadership of our organization, investigated and concluded that the accusations had no foundation. And while I was grateful for the support of my leadership, I was left with a lot of anger and hurt because of what this person had done to me. That was two years ago. A year later, this same person contributed to an academic piece of, uh, of writing that was published, contributing to what amounted to the slandering of my name. And as I processed those events, there was a deep sense of hurt and anger inside of my heart. Recently, a few weeks ago, after not thinking about this person for a while, someone mentioned the name, this person's name, and I immediately felt this visceral reaction, which led me to conclude that I still hadn't completely gotten over this event this situation. There was still pain and anger in my heart. You know, when we experience conflict, there's a very natural, subtle, but insidious tendency to treat those with whom we are at odds with as somehow less than human, ever so subtly making them into something less than made in the image of God. We can do this with individuals just as well as we can do it with groups of people, even entire nations. Having the mind of Christ in our relationship with others leads us to maintain the dignity of others even when we are experiencing conflict with them. Even when we haven't fully gotten over the things that may have caused us hurt. 
even if they themselves are still treating us as less than being made in the image of God. God calls us to humbly submit ourselves to him and to see those who we are at odds with as being made in the image of God. And that is one of the first steps in restoring those broken relationships. And so this is part of what Paul means here when he says, have the attitude of Christ in your relationship, your relationships with one another. Paul tells us that this is how we are to be with one another. Secondly, Paul exhorts us to have the attitude of Christ in our relationship with God. Again, in verses 6, 7, and 8, I'll read, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are two words that come up in this particular section of our passage that I think are very relevant, and those are the words privilege and power. These are hotly debated words with loaded political overtones, but let's take a step back from this toxic, the toxic nature of the current discussions around these words, and instead let's take a look at Scripture, and let's take a look at Jesus himself. Webster defines privilege as a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. Now, if ever there was someone who lived on the face of the earth that was exempt from the sufferings of this life due to human sin, it was Jesus Christ himself. And yet he did the exact opposite of what we saw, for example, a year ago when, a ha when dozens of Hollywood stars bribed university officials so that their kids could get into top-name schools. What we see in that example is illegitimate privilege being used to gain illegitimate advantage. Christ instead had every right to walk through this life, to skate through this life without having to face the difficulties that are brought upon us by sin, and yet he chooses to do the exact opposite. Christ demonstrates for us a life not invested in avoiding the sufferings and pains of this world, not exempting himself from the challenges and the difficulties, not exempting himself from his Father's plan that would demonstrate so magnanimously the grace of God. In verse 6 and 7, it says, He emptied himself, which only makes sense if we understand it this way, that Christ emptied himself, meaning the power which he had, he didn't use. He didn't use to escape this plan of redemption, which would cause him to have to face some of the most horrific pains and struggles. I love the way one evangelical scholar uh, 
comments on this in, in his commentary on Philippians in this particular passage. This is what he says. The incarnation of Christ Jesus represents the antithesis of this human drive to dominate. Although he had access to all the privilege and power to which his identity with God entitled him, and although he could have exploited that privilege and power to dominate his creatures, Jesus considered his deity an opportunity for service and obedience. His deity became a matter not of getting, but of giving. Not of being served, but of serving. Not of dominance, but of obedience. The difficult part of all this is for the 20th century believer that Paul didn't leave his description of Christ's astounding refusal to dominate in the realm of abstract speculation. Instead, he advised the church of, at Philippi and through them the church of today to follow Christ's example. This means that the church and the believer must adopt an incarnational demeanor. Yet this is extremely difficult to do in modern Western societies. Great, even ultimate value in these societies is often attached to wealth, glamour, power, and prestige, and the accepted ways of achieving these ends often involve dominance over others. Long before the political rhetoric, long before critical theory had co-opted these terms like privilege and power, Jesus was showing his church how it should be done. The question is, have we learned this lesson? Because I think the answer to this question is no, we haven't learned this lesson. It's obvious we need to see the connection between Jesus' attitude towards God the Father and how he treats others. Christ embraced a posture of disadvantaged powerlessness, not helplessness, but powerlessness. Yes, he had the power, but he took a posture of powerlessness. There's a big difference between powerlessness and helplessness. Christ had the power, but he emptied, itself, emptied himself, this passage says. He emptied himself of it in the sense that he neither made use of it to excuse himself or exempt himself from this divine calling, this redemption plan, but instead chose the cross, which then later led to his resurrection and glorification. And he didn't blame his Roman accusers or the Jewish leaders for his lot. He did, however, call out the religious leaders for their arrogance and lack of willingness to embrace God's incarnate son who was standing right before their very eyes. It was only with this posture of emptying himself, giving up his privilege, laying aside his power to vindicate himself and intentionally disadvantaging himself that Christ's posture could have turned into the action of obedience, leading to him dying on the cross. This passage in verse 8 tells us that he was obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. The catechism question points this out, refers to this, but, and I've mentioned it before. Of all the ways that Christ could have faced death on this earth, he chose the most humiliating and most degradating way, death on a cross. So having this attitude of Christ in our relations with others, in our relationship with God, for the glory of God, 
we see that this is what Christ did this for. Christ did what he did for the glory of the Father. He sought the glory not for himself, but for the Father. And in the end, he received glory himself as well. So here's a simple question. What's man's chief end? Man's chief end, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All this is wrapped up in the entire purpose of our lives. The gospel tells us that we don't merely study and imitate Christ's example of humility, laying aside privilege and power and being obedient. Well, he certainly is that for us. He's a role model. He's an example. He's so much more than that. We're called not only to imitate Christ. The gospel tells us that we are called to utter dependence on him to the point of allowing our very identity to be found foremost in who Christ is. More than anything else that's part of our identity, that needs to be first and foremost. So here's a question. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, are you enjoying God? John Piper's interpretation, which I agree with, is that if we that is that we glorify God by enjoying him. We most glorify God when we are most enjoying him. So are we enjoying him? If so, great. Keep it up. Don't get cocky, but keep depending on God. Keep walking with the Father daily in repentance of our sins and dependence on him. But if the answer for you today is no, then I would like to probe a little bit more and ask, why? Why are you not enjoying God? Why am I not enjoying God? Think about this for a few seconds. Maybe your response is, well, how can I enjoy God under the current set of circumstances? We can't meet face to face for worship. The economy is being threatened. My job is either lost or at risk. Shelter in place has become another word for torture. Loved ones may be sick or at risk of getting the virus, and nobody knows when this thing will end. Uncertainty pervades everything we do at this juncture of our lives. No doubt these are real struggles for us that many of us are facing, and not just here, but all around the world. But suffering and struggling with the current situation and enjoying God are not antithetical. In the midst of this uncertainty and this struggling and perhaps suffering, God calls us to enjoy him, which will lead to us in turn glorifying him. So I'd like to propose three things that we can do to help us if we are not enjoying God the way we should during this crisis. The first thing is something that we do every Sunday when we come to worship, and that is to confess, to confess our sins to the Lord. Yes, we do this every Sunday, but we should be doing it every day in our, in our time with the Lord, in our devotions, in our daily uh, time with the Lord, in our daily personal worship and family worship. One way to do this is, is to engage regularly in prayer um, and even fasting. 
I would encourage you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and get an idea of what it was that uh, is fundamentally at the heart of fasting, I believe, is that God shows us through, through, the, the, uh, through the removal of this fundamental uh, need of life that we are dependent on him. He even uses it, he used it in, in the lives of the Israelites to keep them humble and to show them that they depend on him for everything. And then finally, confessing our sins in that daily we need to come before the Lord and repent of the things that we have done, not just in our actions, but in our attitudes. I've shared this particular um, uh, little uh, guide for confessing our sins with many uh, people here at Wallace, and they've told me that it was helpful. I call it the five A's. So I've put together a little alliteration of five words that all begin with the letter A to help us in our time of confession. First of all, arrogance. Arrogance is, 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 a, is another word for pride. Pride sometimes can be a positive word, but arrogance is always negative. So arrogant pride. How are we in our hearts being arrogant? How are we not, uh, in a sense, allowing God to be on the throne uh, in our own lives? And ambition, the second A. Selfish ambition. It's always good to have goals and dreams, but selfish ambition seeks to, to, to promote our name above the name of God in our lives and in the lives in the, in the eyes of the people around us. Thirdly, anxiety. We're told not to be anxious for, for anything, but to, to trust in God for his provision. This is particularly relevant right now as so much uncertainty hangs over our heads. We need to trust in the Lord and not be anxious and that can be very challenging. But we can come before the Lord and confess to him that these, are troubling, uh, these thoughts are troubling our hearts. Thirdly, or fourthly, adultery. When I say adultery, I mean anything that we desire in our hearts more than God is what is called spiritual adultery. There are many ways that we can do that. And then finally, the fifth A is anger. Maybe these times have caused us to, to feel angry towards our family or angry towards a particular group of people. God wants us to confess that to him and turn away from that and trust in him. So that's the first thing that we can do during this time to, to help us enjoy God. Secondly, I think we can continue with a posture of outreach, simple ways that we can observe social distancing, but still do outreach requires some creativity. I want to tell you the story of one of the men that I have been laboring with in China for the past 10 years. When our family moved to, to China in 2010, there were two people that met us at the airport. One was Pastor Wang Yi, who's now in prison, and the other one was Pastor Paul. And Paul, while not being in prison, has been under scrutiny and watched by the government since the events of late 2018, but still remains uh, uh, untouched, uh, able to do his ministry. And towards the beginning, uh, towards the end of January of this year, we got a testimony from him about um, a situation in his church where one of his church members, uh, whose, whose mother was 
had contracted the virus was dying. And the church somehow orchestrated a way that they could um, use technology to connect with this, um, this member's mother and were, were, they were able to share the gospel with her and this uh, old woman put her trust in Christ and shortly after that passed away. This is the kind of creativity and the kind of uh, um, inspiration that we've seen in the church in China. They've actually trodden this path ahead of us. And I talked to Pastor Paul last week and he said, please let the congregation know when you preach to them that we are praying for them and that we um, consider ourselves with you as we go through this together. Um, they have much to share with us and we can learn a lot from the things that they've done in this area of outreach. And then finally, I wanna call upon us to look at the current events with some perspective. You know, history always helps us to understand a little bit more about what it is that we're going through. And I was, uh, I, I was looking um, at a friend's post recently and he posted this uh, excerpt from Richard Baxter. Um, it, it, it was, it's related to an epidemic that was striking uh, in Europe during the uh, 1600s, the, the Great Plague. Um, this, uh, there was a one-year epidemic that struck the city of London in 1665. The plague was the last of a series of plagues known as the bubonic plague. Many of you have heard of that. Uh, the, so this was the last of a series of plagues that was uh, in England, the origin of which um, was from China in 1331 and traveled through the Silk Road to Crimea and then to Europe. Uh, it was believed that the, uh, the, the uh, bacteria was caused by the bite of a flea that infested black rats and that these rats had traveled on merchant ships from Asia to Europe. The well-known uh, Puritan pastor Richard Baxter penned these words in his autobiography as he reflected on the events of the Great Plague of 1665 in London, and I want to share those with you. It's scarce possible for people that live in a time of health and security to apprehend the dreadfulness of that pestilence, how fearful people were, 30 or 40, if not even 100 miles from London, of anything they brought from an, any mercer's or draper's shops, or any goods that were brought to them, or of any person that came to their house. How many would shut their doors against their friends, and if a man passed over the fields, how one would avoid another as we did in the times of war and how every man was a terror to another. Oh, how sinfully unthankful are we for our own quiet societies, habitations, and health. Not far from the place where I sojourn at Mrs. At Mrs. Fleetwood's, three ministers of extraordinary worth were together in one house, Mr. Clarkson, Mr. Sam Craddock and Mr. Terry, men of singular judgment, piety, and moderation. And the plague came into the house where they were, one person dying of it, which caused many that they knew not of earnestly to pray for their deliverance. And it pleased God that no other person died. But one great benefit the plague brought to the city, that is, it occasioned the silenced ministers more openly and laboriously to preach the gospel 
to the exceeding comfort and profit of the people, insomuch that to this day the freedom of preaching which is occasion cannot by the daily guards of soldiers nor by the imprisonment, imprisonment of a multitude be restrained. Notice in these words by uh, Richard Baxter the following. He doesn't blame the origin of the problem or the management of it on any one person, on any group of people or any government authorities. As legitimate as those might seem, living in a fallen world tainted by corruption, sin, and greed are all lamentable realities. But Baxter focuses on something only God can do. Take the sin, sickness, and depravity of this world and turn it into something that is both good for mankind and brings glory to God. Brothers and sisters, as we think about these words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and as we think about this Palm Sunday, as we look to Christ, not just as our example, but as the one who embodied humility, let us press into him. Let us trust in him. Let us love one another and let us love God and enjoy him, thereby bringing glory to his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise this morning that we can gather together for worship. Father, we lament the fact that we cannot see one another physically, face to face, and yet help us not to be thankless because of the blessings of this body that allow us even through technology to, to gather together this morning and to be with one another, to know that in spirit we are worshiping the same God, to know that there are people, although we long to see face to face, who are nonetheless with us as we walk through these challenging times, and to know that you are with us. Be pleased with our worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. stand for our parting hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior.